Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Basuan Gaudin Notebook, November 6th of 2023. Arpin, how's your weekend been? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't differentiate the weekend from the weekdays anymore. It's been a just one long day. Just one long day. Just got back, obviously, on Sunday from uh, from the road trip. Yeah. Uh, practice today. Game tomorrow. Um, not going to Detroit, so that'll be a little bit of a, a respite, I guess. But yeah, it's been uh, it was it was a long road trip, a lot of travel, um, but some interesting stuff happened over the road trip. Um, yeah, I think yeah. we're uh, th- this is something because it's an interesting road trip, and of course, t- today we're going to talk. You know, there's some issues that we're going to uh, address. Uh, you know, Martin Saint Louis uh, clearly focusing more on two points than he did last season. Uh, there's going to be our Monday mailbag, obviously. Um, also, we're going to discuss the, 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 the pressure for the Canadians players to play in this market, especially when things go wrong for them. But let's start with this trip, both with what just happened and what is about to happen uh, with the upcoming schedule. I mean, there are tough opponents, uh, you know, Tuesday against Tampa, Uh, Thursday, you just mentioned it, mentioned it. The Canadians will be in Detroit to face the Red Wings. Uh, and then over the weekend, I mean, the ever-surprising Boston Bruins, we always shouldn't, expect... Shouldn't be surprised. Yeah, we shouldn't exactly. be surprised. We always expect <laughs> that there's going to be some sort of downfall or regression, and it's never coming. So they're, they're going to be at the Bell Center, and the day after, the surprising... Uh, Vancouver Canucks, those ones are a bit more surprising. Legitimately than surprising, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a tough schedule for the Canadians. But if we go back to this trip, I think it's interesting because the Canadians just just played three games, uh, Vegas, Arizona, and St. Louis, uh, where they didn't register a win. But at the same time, the fir- that very first game against a team that had not lost in regulation back then, the Vegas Golden Knights, Uh, Martin Saint Louis said this is the best 60 minute game or even 65 the best overall execution and effort I've seen from my players since I took over this job uh, so since I'm behind the bench uh-huh. and they followed that up with two clunkers let's face it the, the, the execution was clearly not there at the same level in Arizona in St. Louis so what do you make of the fact that they were able to reach a, to raise the standard, as St. Louis says, in yeah. in Vegas, and they follow that up with two two performances that are truly subpar. 
Well, listen, first off, it's clear that they didn't raise the standard. It was, you know, I, I think I wrote after that game that Martin St. Louis likes to deal with trends and not one-offs. Yeah. Um, that was clearly not a trend. He was hoping it would be. The way he spoke after the game, even the way the players felt about it, they played an excellent game. They dominated, probably deserved the two points in regulation with the way they played. Um, but it, it turned out to be a one-off. And so, to me, the trip is kind of like, it's kind of like a metaphor for the Canadian season and how it might turn out. You know, you have this great start, the way the Canadians had a great start to the season, not only this season, but also last season. Um, get a couple injuries, standard slips, you kind of, everyone, the whole league kind of sets into who they are. That could be represented by the Arizona game. Um, kind of a return to reality sort of thing, which they might mm-hmm. be in the midst of right now. I mean, you just mentioned the tough schedule ahead of them. They've already gone three games without a win. By the end of the week, it could be, it could be seven games without a win. Like, who knows? It could be. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's really so. Uh, and then the St. Louis game is just kind of continuing that and showing that if there is a trend here, it was not the Vegas game. The Vegas game was the outlier. Um, the way they played in both Arizona and St. Louis, and I think Suzuki, Suzuki, what do you call it? The Arizona call, he called it a scatter fest from us. Yeah. Um, and then in St. Louis, um, called it sloppy. So it's easy to take the, the common denominator of the trip being more so scatter fest and sloppy than it was best this team has looked, uh, since Marty St. Louis took over. But I, I, I agree. I understand your point about, you know, one offs versus trends. But I think when Martin St. Louis talks about raising the standards, It's just saying, okay, so this is the sort of game that we're capable of playing. This is what we need to aim for from this day on. Yeah, this It's not necessarily, w- this is how I expect you to play every single night. But right. this is this is the new benchmark of, here's a prime example of what we can do. And I want you guys to aspire to that as frequently as possible. Beca- mm-hmm. And if we do that, if we bottle that, will be okay. So I think it's just a and and it's a bit it's a bit painful that it the whole thing happened within the confines of a loss because they lost in 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 the shootout but still they didn't get a a, a win for that you know that that great effort. Um but at, at the very least if the team keeps going like that and and keeps mimicking that sort of performance they should be fine but it's clearly when we talk about you know the the ups and downs of a team that's that's still developing it goes to show how you know you if you can't even reproduce something that's similar to that the next game and you know you're 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 going into a level of play that that's truly disappointing it goes to show how how long away they've got to go in terms of finding an overall consistency Uh, as a group, because you know it's not it's not expected that this team is going to be able to sustain a quality of execution night in night out, at least not this season. And that's why you know we can expect that there's going to be a sort of a regression in the standings. We mentioned in the last podcast the fact that we didn't think either of us that this team was would be bad enough to be in the bottom five, but still, I mean, it's not it doesn't it doesn't look like a playoff team either. No, of course not. And that's kind of what I mean when I talk about a metaphor for the season is that, yes, if you're setting the bar at the at the Vegas performance, the point being that with where the team is at, just in terms of their evolution, 
towards becoming a championship caliber team, mm-hmm. they're not there yet. They're not at the point where they can reproduce that night after night. You know, both in Arizona and in St. Louis, they were the rested team. Arizona was traveling from Anaheim on a back-to-back. Uh, Montreal had been had been well-rested in, in, in Arizona waiting for them. St. Louis didn't have to travel, but they played the night before against New Jersey at home. Yeah. Um, again, the Canadians, calling them well-rested might be a bit of a stretch considering the, the travel from Arizona and how complicated it was. And, you know, going to bed at 6 in the morning the day before a game is not ideal. But, but still, they didn't play. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's kind of what I take from the trip is that, yes, we saw the best of what the Canadians could look like under the current circumstances, you know, even without a dock and without a Savard. And still, but still, in terms of style of play, in terms of engagement, commitment to, to really playing their style and, 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 and responding to a challenge from their coach. You know, I mean, that was the big talking point in Vegas for two days was how they hadn't lost in regulation yet and they had an opportunity to do it. And they really embraced that challenge and were like, let's go be that team. And then they went out and, and did their best. I mean, they really couldn't have asked for a better effort from Montreal than, than what they gave. But where they are in their, in their building process – um, means that it's not it's not reasonable. You're right. It's not reasonable to think they could do that every night. And if that's the bar, they're going to have a tough time reaching that. And really, maybe from a realistic perspective, maybe that shouldn't be the bar. Maybe that was a one-off. And maybe the real version of the Canadians is is somewhere between what they did in Vegas and what they did in Arizona. Because not only did they not meet the bar in Arizona, they played awful. Yeah, they were just they were. It was an awful game. It was really the other end of the spectrum for them. And so. If you're Martin St. Louis, you know, I feel like maybe that gives you a bit of a reality check. You know, it's 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 normal for a coach to feel optimistic about his team. It's normal for players to go out there and want to win every game. But this team is what it is at the time that it is, in the development curve that it is. And I think this trip was a reminder of that, that the, that the, the hot start was home heavy, um, a lot of easier games in terms of opponents, some may say that Arizona and St. Louis are easy opponents, but St. Louis beat New Jersey the night before. Yeah. Uh, Arizona has been playing excellent hockey all season, so they're heavy. They're heavy in the way. I mean, they're fast, they're skilled, but there's they play a heavy style. It's not necessarily that they're physically heavy, but they're they really they were they on the top of them lot. the whole game. Yeah, and they have the puck a lot, and it's yeah. tough to get it. It's tough to get it from them once they have it. So, so that's but, that's kind of the reality of the situation, and that's why like when. You know, you talked, you mentioned, you tease sort of the two points thing, right? And everyone mm. could think like, oh, that's obvious. Obviously, any coach going into a game would say, I'm going after the two points. But there's there's context to that question is, are you going after the two points more so than trying to develop some of your players and making sure that they get the proper ice time, making sure they get put in the right situations? And, you know, Marty said over the course of the trip that right now, based on how my team has played so far this season, I lean more towards the two points, which yeah. is why Caden Primo has not played, did not play a single game on that road trip. Um, is that good for Caden Primo? Is it good for the Canadians organization based on where they at, are at right now? I think Canadians management is trying to get a handle on what they have with Caden Primo. They, they're stuck right now. They can't send him to Laval. They're convinced he won't make it through waivers. That, that horse has been beaten solid <laughs> by now. Like it's very clear. Um, so under the current circumstances, you'd like to see him get some games. And I think management would like to see him get some games. But Marty's not at a place where he's willing to 
sacrifice is a strong word because it's not a given they're going to lose if Caden Primo starts, but not give his team the best chance to win is something he's not willing to do just yet. And maybe that's a mindset that might need to shift at some point soon. Yeah. If I, I just want to go back for a quick minute uh, to the schedule thing, because now the Canadians are going to play five of their next six games at home uh, where they've got a 4-2 record, but they've got a negative goal differential. Uh, but after the game in St. Louis, Brendan Gallagher said, we need to learn to be a better, to, we, we need to learn how to play smarter on the road. Um, what do you make of that? What do you, uh, how do you, you know, when you hear a comment like this, what's your, you know, well, judging think, from what you've seen, what's a, what, yeah. what do you consider a, a team that should play smarter on the road? Well, you hear um, Marty St. Louis often uses the football analogy of you got to know when to punt. Yeah. Um, I think that's what Brendan's talking about. You know, too many turnovers at the opposing blue line. Marty Marty refers to that as starting the other team's offense. Yeah. And so um, you've got you've to know when the situation is right to have a controlled entry um, and, and, or have a controlled exit. And when it's right that where you just got to punt and, and turn it over to your defense and hope to live another day and get, get your offense a better opportunity later on in the game. I, I get that. But what's the part about that that's specific to the road games? Well, because on the on the road, since you don't control matchups, since you don't, I mean, I, I think there's certain elements of 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 road hockey you're more likely to lose. Um, well, I guess you're not most likely to lose faceoffs anymore since they changed the rules. But I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's it is there's an element where you're not controlling the pace of the play. Like the coach kind of has to anticipate what the other coach is going to do in terms of who he puts out there. So you don't, you're not always going to have an ideal situation on the ice. So I guess if your fourth line's out there and they find themselves against the top line. Don't try to don't try to make a play. Don't try to dangle at the opposing blue line and try and you know try and just survive the shift, live to fight another day. And I think yeah. that's you know listen in St. Louis, um, he was on a power play. I understand it, and I honestly don't blame Justin Barron because it looked like he got tripped. He got tripped. Um, yeah, and so oh, yeah. but still, the principle of the play, what led him, what put him in a situation to be tripped, was making a somewhat risky play at the at the blue line. You are in a power play, fine. Mike Matheson does that all the time and gets away with it more often than not. But if you're Justin Barron in that situation, maybe just dump it back in the zone, you know, and and see what see what happens if you just mm -hmm. maintain possession as opposed to try and make something happen at the blue line that leads directly to a shorthanded goal and ultimately essentially puts the game away. I mean, it's, right. it's it wasn't it wasn't over at that point, but was a real massive turning point in that game. So I think. You know, Brendan Gallagher's not going to sit there and say, "Hey, Justin Barron, just get that puck deep and 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 live to fight another day." But that's that's an example of what he's talking about in a game situation. I don't know if it's all that specific to the road. It might just be that they happen to have done those things more on the road than they have at home. But I think yeah, well, that's we where often his reaction hear, came from. We often hear players say that they got to play a simple game on the road, and I think that's. That, that boils down to that too. I mean, you, you talk yeah. about turnovers for sure that Barron put himself in a tough spot there. He could have recognized the pressure coming to him at the blue line. But I mean, Dvorak had a turnover on a previous goal, yeah. uh, followed by a lost battle by, uh, by Newhook along the boards. That set up. Uh, no, no, no. Let me correct you. Because in order to lose a battle, you have to actually engage in a battle. <laughs> so 
<laughs> it was not a lost battle. That no, was just no. an, it was an ignored <laughs> battle by Alex Newhook on that one. Right, yeah. right. He, he seemed to fight the puck a bit on that one. Um, yeah. So yeah, but there were multiple instances, you know, and it, it, that, that was two games in a row where the Canadians really, um, you know, they 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 fed the other teams rush. By by you know giving the blue line, letting them you know enter the slot quite easily. Uh, so at some point, I think th those are things that you need to correct. And if Martin Saint Louis is so happy that they had done so in Vegas, well, it was definitely a coming back to earth uh, situation in the next in the next two games. But you mentioned um, Baron on the power play. We saw last game that Justin Barron was put on the second unit of the power play, yeah. uh, replacing Arbor Jackai, who had been there since the beginning of the season. Obviously, Arbor Jackai, he's got the, the, the heavier shot between the two. He's probably, he, I actually clocked the, the, the most powerful slap shot on any player in the Canadians uh, so far this season. But Barron, it really suits his style with, with the fact that he's able to, you know, to dance down the blue line and he's got, uh, he's a great passer. Uh, he's, he's, vision. he's got vision a lot more than Jack guys. So he's, yeah. his skill set is, is, is suited for the power play. If your power play is not, you know, uh, is not based on, on the big shot at the blue line, which hardly any team is like that anymore. So, yeah. But this is a situation where earlier this season we spoke. I remember we spoke about that before. That decision of putting Baron on the PK and Jacky on the power play, Martin saying we wanted to basically take two those two guys a little bit out of their comfort zone and help them develop parts of their game that they had not necessarily, uh, you know, been exposed to much at the professional level and mm -hmm. just then add to their toolbox. But when you mentioned a few minutes ago, the fact that, that uh, the coach was focused more on winning games right now, that's another example because he put those guys back in, back to where they belong. Granted, there was not, uh, there, there was hardly there were no, any, there were no any PK. Coast. Exactly. No so, yeah. so, We could not see if Jackai will be uh, will be used all that much on the PK, but as for Baron on the power play, it was a natural role. So, isn't it there also another instance where basically Martin Saint Louis, instead of going for development right now, has switched to let's win, let's win games. That well, will my deployment, my the usage of my lines will go accordingly, the choice of my goalie will go accordingly, and so on and so. On. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think there was also part of it was, um, part of it was that Jack High's play is is slipping a little bit in the defensive zone, and so I, you know, I asked Marty about that on Monday morning after practice, and he said he wanted Arbor to focus on his defensive game and mm -hmm. and and try and try and really put the emphasis on that. And I think Jack High's been fighting it a little bit, and quite honestly, the way things are looking, I mean, he is the number six defenseman on the team right now. And so um, he, you know, there are ways away from David, David Savard coming back, but if he were to be back tomorrow, I kind of think Jack, I would be out of the lineup the way mm. he's been playing so far. So, I mean, I think there's some, some improvements that he has to make in his game and maybe having the power play to think about, because it, it requires a lot of, of, of thought for Jack Kai because he's never played 
never played power play. And he even admitted it. Uh, you know, there was a game in Buffalo where he, where he just ran the wrong breakout on the power play where he just chose the wrong one. Or for whatever reason, wasn't on the same page as everyone else as what they had discussed on the bench before they jumped on the ice. So, um, you know, I th- so yes and no, I think. Yes, Barron is a better fit on the power play, but Marty always knew that. But I think there is some development to be done with, with Jack High um, in terms of where his overall game is at. And and you shouldn't be on the power play if your overall game is, is suffering a little bit, although Mike Matheson's obviously going to stay on the power play, even though his overall game is, is suffering a little bit. But I think in the case of a young player who's still developing, allowing him to to put his entire focus on, on his on his biggest areas of need um, is still a development decision, ultimately. I think it shows faith also in 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 Justin Barron. He's a guy that, you know, with David Savard being out, he needs all the help he can get, he mm-hmm. being Martin Saint-Louis, from his right-handed defenseman. And making sure that he puts Barron in good situations is going to be very helpful. And game after game, He's, Baron's slowly raising his levels. I'm not. I, I always find that there's a little bit of a nonchalant aspect to his b- demeanor on the ice, and I always fear that this might turn into mistakes or turnovers or whatnot. But let's. We, I must. I must say that you know there's there's less and less of those mistakes as games go on, and that he's finding his groom grew offensively. We've seen him. He's probably the one defenseman that has set the tone in the past five or six games when it comes to defensemen, you know, jumping the rush uh, and, you know, coming in the second wave of attack. He's really been, you know, leading the charge in that sense uh, on the blue line, and I think that's good. And it's only fitting now that he's being given the chance to help the second unit of the power play so that he it adds to that comfort zone and adds to the fact that, say, okay, this is – This is where I can help and contribute the most, and uh, it it becomes sort of a, a snowball effect for him. But you know, I I see some improvement in his play overall. So, oh, hundred percent. He's he's been solid. You know, I talked to him and Gooley this morning as well, and and just about their pairing and and how you know they played together at the World Juniors, and and you know we, we tend to make too much of that sometimes. It's a two week or three week tournament years and years ago, uh, but. Gooley said, you know, as soon as on day one of camp for that for that tournament, when they got put together, it just seemed natural. And even though years have gone by since they played in that tournament together, as soon as they were put together as a pairing with the Canadians, felt just as natural. And and you know, they have complementary skill sets. You know, they're both excellent skaters. Gooley's probably a, a well, not a little. Gooley's considerably stronger defensively. Barron's got more of the offensive upside, but in terms of having two tall, rangy, strong skating defensemen on the same pair who kind of see the game the same way and are so and are really familiar with with how each other plays, yeah. because of those similarities, that creates a lot of comfort. You know, Barron's Barron feels that his game is is thriving right now because he finally feels comfortable as an NHL defenseman. Um Getting the minutes he's been getting next to Gooley helps. Getting the power play assignment helps as well. You know, and Marty talks about it's important for every player to have a role. So when you get when you get put on the second power play unit, that's going to help your comfort level. And you know, he's coming from from far in the sense that you know when you start the season, you're out of the lineup. 
you start questioning that place in the NHL. Uh, but as soon as he was needed, he stepped in. I think he had a couple of games where he was a little spotty and settled right into a nice groove here where you were seeing a confident, self-reliant um, version of Justin Barron that we probably haven't seen since the trade. Uh, and it's reflecting in his play. I mean, he's he's not, you know, notwithstanding that play on the power play in St. Louis, but really hasn't made that many mistakes. Whereas I think last season um, he was very mistake prone and, and really made. Uh, well, even some- even the, even on the uh, during training camp, I mean, he was yeah. he was still quite his play was quite vulnerable more than mm-hmm. he is. He is now. No doubt yeah. about it. Um, and it's but, interesting. But super important might- for the Canadians, though, because honestly, like the other night, everyone saw how Matheson was struggling. Kovacevic wasn't much better. Uh, Jackai, as mentioned, the only guy who was really playing well on the first and third pairs was Jordan Harris. And so what does Marty do after the first period? He puts Harris up with Matheson. Kovacevic goes back down to where he's probably best suited on a third pairing with Jackai. Um, and so the one, the one pairing... Like Marty's done that in game twice, and the one pairing he hasn't touched is Gooley Barrett. Yeah, and so that's another vote of confidence for for Gooley and for Barrett. So early in the season, right at the beginning of the season, Barron was a a talking point. You know, would would he face the same fate as last year? Would he be sent down? It was you know there was talk about maybe keeping uh, Matthias Norlander. So there was a spotlight on him. Uh, there's a spotlight on on various guys over time that that struggle maybe and because the, the 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 attention in Montreal is so so big on this team that whatever doesn't work perfectly right is going to become a, a, a topic of discussion and granted whatever works very well is a topic of discussion too but I want I wanted to bring you on the um, uh, on the topic of, uh, of the pressure of playing in Montreal, because right now we've got two guys. I mean, we've talked about, we've, we spent most of the last two podcasts talking about Uri Slavkovsky and judging by the questions of our colleagues today, uh, now their attention has turned to Josh Anderson, who is still uh, snake bitten and still looking for a goal after all those chances that he got since the beginning of the season. Those two guys have been, the focus on uh, of many comments, many critiques. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when things go, don't go right for a player in Montreal, uh, it, it can become heavy. And not every player is going to be able to handle it the same way. Yeah. Uh, how t- do you, first, do you think that it's really that much different in Montreal compared to, let's say, other Canadian markets? I mean, I see... I'll see how people are calling for DJ Smith's head in Ottawa. How, uh, you know, Jay Woodcroft in, in Edmonton is also on the hot seat. And there's a lot of pressure on, you know, on this Oilers team to, to meet the expectations. And in Toronto, there's, uh, they, they, again, those doubts about how, how team tough they are and yeah. how resilient they are and how combative they are. So, It's not just Montreal, but is it? Is there something specific about this market here that will make it bigger in terms of pressure for for guys like Slavkovsky or Anderson? You think? Um, I mean, I don't. I don't personally. I don't consider it that different from Toronto. Um, I think it is a little bit more intense than Ottawa, Edmonton, 
all the other Canadian teams. Well, Vancouver is actually pretty pretty up there, but um, the one the one difference I guess in Montreal is 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 the two languages. I did a I did a big story on this exact topic several years ago when I was still working for NHL.com, and uh, an interesting oh, anecdote. That's a long I got. time ago. That was a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> but it was. But I spoke to a lot of people. You know, I spoke to like Michelle Terrian was a coach at the time. Obviously, Carey Price was a goalie. Max Pacioretty was a captain. So I spoke to other captains, other yeah. former goalies, other former coaches um, about those specific roles, those three positions on the Canadians as being the most pressure-packed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, got a lot of interesting responses, but nothing all that surprising. But the best thing I heard about it when I was re- researching that story, something I actually didn't even use in the story, was uh, the New Jersey Devils were in town and Mike Camilleri was playing for the Devils and he always loved coming to Montreal as a visiting player. He's someone who really enjoyed speaking to the media as a player. Yeah. Um, so he was like always excited to see us. We'd sit around and kind of shoot the shit a little bit and he, was, he loved it. Um, so I was looking, I was, I was doing this story and I asked him, I was like, listen, I'm trying to do this story on what makes the pressure in Montreal unique. What makes it yeah. different from anywhere else? And he's from Toronto or the Toronto area, at least. And so he said, I'll give you a perfect example. He's like, this season, I started, and I don't remember the exact numbers, so I'm kind of paraphrasing the story, but he's like, this season, I started the season, I didn't score, I didn't even get a point in the first, let's say, nine games. Basically what Josh Anderson is going through right now. Right. Um, Didn't answer a single question about it. Then I went on a tear and got like five goals in six games. Didn't answer a single question about it. Like so, in one. What sense, are those reporters asking yeah, about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I don't. I just don't know if he spoke to reporters that often. You know, like he wasn't right. really one of the, you know, one of the leading players on the team or whatever. It, it just did. It just he wasn't an important story, yeah. and he was like, you know, had both of those things happened in Montreal, it would be the talk of the. It would be the talk of the team, and we're seeing it right now. You know, as For soon sure. as. Uri Slavkowski scores. Listen, on Arizona, in Arizona, after practice, Josh Anderson came out, answered questions for a good 10 minutes. All of them being about his slow start to the season, how he doesn't have a goal, what's he going to do, this and that. He answered them very patiently. Uh, tried to put the, a smiling face on it. Tried to put a smiling face on it, yeah. yeah. But the, the focus remained on Uri Slavkowski. Uri Slavkowski scores a goal, has a good night in St. Louis. So the perception can be, okay, well, we can move on from that now and let's focus on Josh Anderson. And today, Monday after practice, Josh Anderson comes out and fields almost the exact same line of questioning as he did in Arizona, except it was a little bit more urgent now. Two games had passed since then without him scoring, with him not playing all that well. And, you know, I mean, in a sense, like going back to the Camilleri story, like Camilleri going through that difficult start to the season, it's a little easier to stay level if you know that the, the public discourse has nothing to do with you. Like you internally could be going nuts and 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 wanting to to break out of it, which every player would. It's just that added layer of discourse that you're missing. And and so today, you know, we, we came back from practice a few couple hours ago at this time when we're recording. You know, Josh Anderson, I don't know how much he's thinking about the, the the questions he answered, but one thing he knows is that his lack of production is a talking point. That he knows. How much he cares, it's hard to know. Mm. But he knows that people around town are talking about it. So it's it it is 
it is a layer that you know you don't have in every market. I think you do in most of the Canadian ones, but it, it can make getting out of a situation like that a little heavier. You know, Yurislavkovsky said he doesn't read the media, he doesn't have Facebook, doesn't have Twitter, he has Instagram, but quote, luckily no one says anything bad on Instagram, which was a great, a great line. But you know, it, it helps to be able to turn that off, but not every player can. No, no, I, and it's funny because Sean Manan, I was talking to him uh, today, and you know, he said. I was exposed to that in Calgary and he couldn't re really remember what made him decide to shut everything off around him, uh, whether it was poor production or, you know, an injury or whatever, but he, he decided to, you know, not to go on social media anymore. He says it's more difficult for, for younger players who are, it's, it's part of their lifestyle, their habits to, you know, to, to use that. And, uh, and it's definitely, It's how a they place social. where you can have you, you can have the pulse of where the fans you know where the fans stand towards you and they're not it's not going to be a 20,000 feet appreciation of your work it's going to be on the here and now and it's going to be always what have you done for me lately so it's not even about the game the good game you had five days ago it's how are you tonight so and you just see with the the whole discourse around Slav uh, it's been just switched to a positive one in the span of one game just because he was given the chance to play alongside uh, two very good players and had a, one of his best showings of the season in response. So uh -huh. it's it, it's it's interesting, but it's a um, the, the pressure cooker that is Montreal always seems to be a, a, a redundant, not a redundant, but a... a uh, uh, It seems to come back very often as, as a talking point, especially among players who were in Montreal before and having the chance to step away can realize how, how draining it can be. Um, and to that effect, it's, it's, I would like to switch right away to a question that we had, uh, cause we, uh, we asked, uh, our listeners to send us their questions, uh, either on our, uh, on the Twitter handle of the show, Basu and Godin. Or uh, on, uh, by email at Bessu and Godin at gmail.com. And we've got P. Morano who asks us, he says, as journalists, do you turn your mind to the level of coverage and necessarily pressure uh, dedicated to a single player? Um, oh, gosh, I, uh, hold on a second. I, I need to uh, find the, 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 the rest of that, uh, the rest of the question because I. I Well, um, we can just paraphrase it. Basically, yeah. he was talking about he was talking about do we keep in mind how much we're adding on to the the pylon, I guess, when 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 one player is struggling and he seems to be the focal point of right. coverage. How do or you feel? Do we, right, or do we simply report on the topics and issues the fans are clamoring for? That's what he, he says, regardless of its potential impact on the player. Right. So that's a because it, it's a tricky one because. You know, to say, well, we're going to ignore the fact, because I've seen some, some, some fans saying, oh, leave the kid alone. Yeah, but if we're talking about the Canadians and there's this issue going on, you can't just ignore it because, you know, the kid might feel hurt by what he's going to hear. It's always just about being fair, and it's about making sure that you keep a big picture, a bird's eye view of the whole situation, and making sure that it, you're not reading too much into one small event and saying, okay, in the, in the, the global aspect of it, 
where what does it mean where does it go to co- to say that Slavkovsky is a bust right now is would be ridiculous but to say mm-hmm. okay he's struggling why is he struggling what's the best way for the canadians to help him out of his struggles that's an entirely different discourse so i think that the, the players ha- you know if they're new to the canadians they they're rapidly getting used to the fact that those discussions will happen every day in both languages on TV with with 24-hour uh, you know sports shows both on uh, RDS and TV Aspal you've got TSN 690 you got all sorts of of media outlets they're we're bombarded with Canadians content so it can seem like it's too much at some point but i think that it's the responsibility of every media person And also, if you're so into it as a fan, it can be your responsibility too to say, okay, well, what, how do we analyze this by not necessarily getting too ahead of ourselves and getting too too passionate about it, but just using our brains to say, okay, what's what's the situation now? Uh, what it can mean, but drawing conclusions because it's it's such a uh, because it feels good to say they were wrong. I mean, it's it doesn't serve anybody, and it's not and it's not even right. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, it's 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 it is it's a valid question because you know you don't want to you don't want to contribute to a mountain of negative coverage if it's unfair. Um, you do need to keep in mind that um, that there's there's different bars for different players, right? I mean, listen, Nick Suzuki had a couple of bad games. People mentioned it. Marty said he could be better. It became a thing. What did Suzuki do? He, he went out and had a good game and it put an end to it. Slavkowski, same deal. It had, he'd ultimately had four or five bad games. Yeah. And in his case, obviously it's amplified because he's the number one overall pick, but you know, we went through this experience with Jesperi Kakaniemi and it's very similar. And, and, I learned something from, from that experience because there is – I have a tendency to give the benefit of the doubt to a player who is Slavkovsky's age, just as I did with Kotkaniemi. When he was 19, when he was 20 even, I'm like, the kid's 20. You know, like it's, he's, he's going to make mistakes. He's going to grow out of it. But at a certain point, and it's becoming an earlier and earlier point in the NHL, is that what you see at 19 – might still be there at 2021. If it, if it is there at 21 or 22, that's an issue. And so, mm-hmm. you know, some of the things you see at this age, even if you can make the argument, you shouldn't even be in the NHL at this point, um, can be hints of later problems more so than it used to be. Whereas in the past, you know, I mean, what uh, I'm trying to think of an example from like the eighties, like, like Sergio Mameso made the NHL, like right out of junior, you know, like that whole crew, Shane Corson, all those guys who came up together, Claude Lemieux, Claude Lemieux Stefan Richet, like that group that was really raw, mm. you know, I think it was Nat. They were further away from their primes than an 18 year old is today. Like your prime is, is a lot earlier in the NHL now than it was back then. It's not, you're not looking at 26 to 30 like you were back then. You're looking at 22 to 26, like now or 22 to 28, let's say. So, you know, if Slash Prime is at 22, then at 19, he has to start building up towards that prime, right? So 
I'll give you. I'll just. I'll give you an example of my thought process. The game in Arizona on Thursday. You know, I woke up that morning after having gone to practice, kind of seen how it gone. Slavkovsky storming off the ice at one point, really upset with himself. Had a frustrating day at practice, and I was like, okay, listen, if Slav, if Slav has a rough one tonight, I'm going to have to write something about this. You know, this is really. It's gotten to the point where it's it's becoming very negative um, for the player. Plus, there was the whole Gooley, Cooley thing, Logan Cooley. Plus, there was the whole Cooley thing, of course, and, and just the way the game played out. And so, but it's not—it's not to pile on. It's—and if you read what I wrote, it's not really about Slaff. It's about how he's being managed, how he's being handled. What's what is this the best place for him? Is this—is it good that the organization is keeping him in this situation that is starting to become extremely hot and? Mm. You know, as it turns out, Slap wasn't paying attention to any of that stuff and, and shouldn't be surprised in that the heat that he was generating was being generated by himself and it continues to be generated by himself. But again, it should be seen as a positive sign that he, all it took was one switch, one change that boosted his confidence for him to have a much better game. Was it a perfect game? No, but it was much better than the bar he had set so far this season. So then you write about that too, you know? I mean, it's just like it's so the end of the question is exactly right. You have to write about not necessarily what the fans are clamoring for. You have to write about the topics that are important to the organization and that are right. important to the team and why they're important, what makes them important, what needs to change, who's at fault in some, in some sense, in some cases, um, maybe write a piece. If you feel the discourse has become hysterical then try to calm it down. If you feel that there's not enough of a discourse around something that there should be more of, then try to ramp it up. Say like, listen, no one's talking about this, but this is an important thing. And maybe you should be talking about this. So those, These are all like decisions that go uh, into your coverage as a journalist. Um, but it's, it's always considered there's, there's, I try not to write anything that I haven't thought through a lot and, and thought, but the main sticking point of my whole thought process is, is, is it fair to write this at this time? It's basically how I go. Yeah. And the feeling also of piling on uh, that some hardcore fans might get from reporters is how much media they'll consume. Even if everybody writes one article about Slavkovsky and you end up reading six articles, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, they're piling on. Well, no, it's just we're it's it's all done in horizontally but you yes. choose to concurrent, you choose to concurrent. consume everything so <laughs> yeah but the, the other and the players can feel it too because well for example you read six articles about let's say tomorrow you read six articles about josh anderson well that came as a result of people from six different media outlets asking josh anderson questions today which to josh anderson would feel like a barrage of questions about how crap he's been But really, it's just each reporter trying to get each specific question that he or she needs to either write his or her story or produce his or her TV piece or whatever it is or get the clip that they need on radio. Mm. And so even that can feel like piling on from a player's perspective because you'll take 10 questions. Eight of them will be a different vari variation on some negative theme centered around the fact he hasn't scored a goal. So yeah. I wouldn't blame Josh Anderson for leaving a scrum like that and being like, what the fuck? Like, what's like, wow. Well, yeah, how did I just go through that whole thing just because I haven't scored yet? Whereas 
anyhow, it's it's I can see it how he would feel that way when you go through repeated questioning on the same subject. Whereas it's also understandable from the media standpoint because maybe mm-hmm. a specific aspect of that hasn't been covered and you need an answer for that. That being said, if you if we flip this situation this this reality around, if things are going well for you, the Montreal market is a very good window to show the rest of the league that you know things are doing uh, are are going well because there's going to be those same amplifiers in the media that that might you know add urgency or or gravitas to a certain situation when things go well for a guy like Sean Monahan right now for example when if people start saying you know Sean Monahan's playing amazing hockey etc cetera, etc cetera, uh when things go right it helps make it sometimes what well, e- either bigger than it really is or in Monahan's case it would be just uh uh, uh How do you say rendre justice? You know, it would be like... Uh, um, it would be... Uh, I can't I can't think of what it is in English. Okay, but anyway, well, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. to express accordingly or give, you know, give their... The, the, They're just due. You're just due exactly yeah. to to the fact that this guy is playing well. So, And it's happened in the past. Guys came in Montreal and, and heightened their value just by... Being in Montreal, showcasing their, their skills for some time, everybody's saying, "Oh, he's he's playing well, he's doing well." And next thing you know, they they get either they get traded for a good return or they get a, an amazing contract uh, a few months after. Yeah. I always come back with the idea of James Wisniewski. James Wisniewski is exactly what I was thinking of. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, he got really rich from a very short stint in Montreal where he played legitimately very well. I mean, he really yeah. did. So, but, um, but yeah, so it can be positive too, you know. The, the, it's not yeah, always okay. negative, negative. It's it, right. it goes both we'll ways. See, and we'll find out. We'll see what the lead story is coming off of practice today. If it's Sean Monahan or if it's Josh Anderson, in most of the media outlets, and mm. then we're going to put that to the test because Sean Monahan is it is it is a tremendous story. You know, it's like a great story of a guy who's fighting back from injury, a former like elite centerman in this league, high draft pick. Went through hell, uh, went through hell again last season, and is now performing at just a top top level and is is a really is their best player. Is their best player, and or if because there were two scrums that were equally attended, they went on equally long. So now let's see. This is a test. <laughs> <laughs> let's see who's on page one on Tuesday morning. If it's Josh yeah. Anderson, the goalless wonder, or if it's Sean Monaghan, the ageless wonder. So it's, it's well, the be... fact that the Canadians have lost their last three games makes me go towards Josh Anderson. Well, had they good. won those games, yeah. maybe it would be a different story. But all right, know. let's get to the let's get to the rest of the mailbag because we have a lot sure. of questions and we want to uh, make sure we get to as many as we can in the next, uh, let's say, 15, 20 minutes. So mm-hmm. let's go. Um, can oh, uh, just a quick one uh, that's. Regarding Slavkovsky too, uh, what it's, it comes from Trevor from Calgary. What's the organization doing to help Slav through the shit storm of fan backlash? What have they done to help the players succeed with the ups and downs of the fans' comments and reactions? Uh, Trevor is uh, referring to uh, Molson, uh, Jeff Molson's initiatives on players' mental health. Yeah, good question. Um, I did I did inquire about this last season. I have it this season, but. 
basically the one thing the Canadians have done. Um, you know, Jeff Molson, when when he fired Mark Bergevin, mentioned that they were going to put together a sort of a health and wellness, mental mental health and wellness sort of wing of their medical department. Um, that hasn't happened yet. Not as, not at least as robustly as Jeff Molson seemed to suggest it would. Uh, Jean-Francois Menard is their mental performance coach. Um, remains with the team. He was at practice this morning. Uh, works with players who, who want to work with him. He worked a lot with the He has worked a lot with the Armia as just one example. Who's of, of a player who's openly spoken about it. a lot of players would rather not speak about, uh, that kind of stuff they're doing off the ice. Uh, Yoel was quite open about it last season when he was going through some tough times, how it helped him maintain his confidence. Um, I would imagine, I don't know, I haven't spoken to him about it this year, you know, after getting sent to Laval, but that would be an example of when speaking to, uh, to Menard would be beneficial. But really, aside from high, and, and really the player has to want that help. Like, that's really mm-hmm. what it comes down to. Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't asked Slavkovsky directly, but my understanding is that he hadn't really availed himself of that during the course of, of whatever was going on. So, um, or what is still going on, really. I mean, it just takes a couple more bad games for that, for that storm to, to get drawn up again. Um, so that's, that's, that's basically it as far as I know. I don't know if you're aware of any other initiatives that they've taken, but that really is the one, the one yeah, big change that's really, happened. No. Yeah, so I was not sure if JF would be back this season because his face disappeared from the website, and also he was not around too much earlier in the season. He was not on the trip, but I saw him in the stands at Bell Center this morning, and yeah. he's he's definitely. I've seen him uh, on the press box a couple of times this yeah. season as well. He's around. Yeah, he's around, and he's still with the team, and and they do still have available. It's which is an improvement from what there was before. They didn't have anyone like that before. Yeah, they did have a sports I, psychologist who worked with the team for a little while. Um, I forget his name. No, 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 for a long while, and he's still yeah. there. Doctor Doctor Scott is still no, there. No, no, yeah, not yeah. Doctor Scott. It was a, it was a specifically it was, oh. it was someone else. It was anyhow. Okay, he's not with the team anymore, but he he mm. was he did work with them for a while. But um, and Doctor Scott obviously does still work with them. But um, in terms of dealing directly with the players on a, a sort of a day to day basis, it's John Frost Menard is right is the guy. And I think that it, it's very sporadic, but. Um, there's a few events over the course of the year where uh, the players will meet the alumni. And I think that, which was not something that was encouraged all that much under Marc Bergevin, but there has been an effort to, to, you know, build bridges between the former players and the current edition of the the Montreal Canadiens. And I guess this is really a topic where if there are some, some good relationships that are established, I know that Chris... Nylin seems to have his, his ends with a few players. Uh, former players can can help with uh, also giving their opinion regarding the, the the immensity of the market and how they personally handled it. So that's something also, I guess, that uh, that can help as a support. It's not something that's daily, or it's certainly not as as direct as uh, Jeff Menard's uh, input can be. But once in a while, to feel like there's a sense also of there's a there are generations of experience before you of guys living the same ups and downs in during their their Canadians days is uh, something I guess that uh, uh, 
the, the current players could, could turn to. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is uh, Marc Caron who's uh, asking us, assuming no injuries by the end of the season, who loses their spot to Lane Hudson in the last dozen games? Well, that's uh, th- there are a lot of things that are uh, suggested here. First off, well, that it's Lane assumed. Hudson... There's a lot huh? of are assumed there, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, that he's going to sign a contract at the end of his season. Also, that uh, Boston University is not going to be very successful. Uh, I doubt that he would be available for that many games. But there is... Uh, there's a strong possibility, I would say, that uh, it would be uh, Lane Hudson's last year at BU. Uh, and for a player or a prospect of his caliber, uh, it's not. it wouldn't be surprising one bit that he signs a contract and spends the last few games in Montreal. Uh, but it's an interesting situation because Lane Hudson's not the only guy in that situation. David Reinbacher could also uh, mm-hmm. join the team at the end of the year. So Lane, Hudson's a left shot. Reinbacker's a right shot, so it's uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see because you have you have players that are um, you know finishing their contracts. Uh, I'm thinking, well, first and foremost, there's a um, uh, uh, actually no, there's no there, there's two guys that are RFA's at the end of the year, Baron and Jackai, but nobody uh, ends their contract at the end of this. Uh, season. Uh-huh. What we see though is Jonathan Kovacevic, we mentioned him before. Uh, he's got one more year. Uh, he could be a guy that, you know, the Canadians could decide to move at the deadlines thinking, well, we we did what we could to heighten his value. He's replaceable. We could choose to make room for him. Uh, David Savard uh, also, uh, he's got one more year uh under contract, he's a right-handed defenseman. To me, he's the sort of guy that could definitely be moved at the deadline if he's healthy. Uh, and as part of a way not only to bank on the fact that a team that's uh, going in the playoffs could, could use a player like that, definitely. But also, he seems like the most likely candidate to give a spot to a younger player if there's a need to, uh, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to insert a a younger player, a rookie defenseman. But Saval's a right-handed shot, so it works only for Reinbacher. Uh, the other item, I guess, would be what happens to the right-handed defensemen that are in Laval currently. You know, if you move Saval, for example, at the deadline, uh, do you have other guys that can't play on the right side? Kovacevic, uh, I mentioned Kovacevic. We've got Baron there, but it's still thin, so it, you go directly to the, that new wave of defensemen, Reinbacker, but also uh, Logan Mayu and whatnot. So uh, it's to me, it's Lane Hudson, and there's a good chance that he finishes the season in Montreal, but it's it, it, it would be either to either Kovacevic or Savard, maybe Jackye. We mentioned the fact that Jackye was the number six. Maybe he would uh, be put on the sidelines depending on how his season goes. But to me, it's between one of those three. How about what do you think? I don't think you could bar injuries. <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, I think you pretty much, you pretty much covered it. I don't need to add much, but I mean, I'm pretty sure this will solve itself. Yeah, at some point there'll be some hole created right around the time that they're arriving, and so I think this is a. This is a problem to be dealt with at a later date, but uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it, I don't think it'll be an issue getting them a couple of games at the end of the season if that's the case. If that's actually what's going to happen, right? Okay, here's one for you, man. Uh, since you last discussed Suzuki's usage, 
Marty seems to be trying. That's from uh, Android side. That's the, the handle on Twitter. Um, Marty seems to be trying very hard to keep him off the PK and has succeeded in doing so, except when there are injuries during a game like with uh, Harvey Pinot. Do you think this is the right approach or should they try to develop his PK skills more? Well, listen, I mean, whether or not it's the right approach, this is something that Martin St. Louis wanted to do. So I think he feels that maybe Suzuki's offensive potential was being unmet as a result of overusage. I don't think – I think there's merit to that thought. Um, this is a big year for Nick Suzuki. You know, Nick Suzuki has to, has to show uh, that, that he can be that – point a game guy if not better mm -hmm. you know and to be a number one center in this league you need there's a certain bar of offensive production that you need to hit uh nick suzuki's 24 years old now it's kind of a now or never situation and listen if nick suzuki turns into like a 50 to 70 point center who's who's responsible defensively and can kill penalties and, and play on the power play then fine then at a later date you can put him back on the pk but i think what's what the thinking behind it for Marte St. Louis is let's put this guy in the best position to produce offensively. And now that Christian Dvorak is back and they have Sean Monaghan in that spot, they have Yola Arbia in the lineup. When Raphael Harvey Pinard comes back, presumably playing in a lesser role, Jake Evans is already there. There's lots of guys to play on the penalty kill and be effective on the penalty kill. Yes, Yolonen has been good on the penalty kill. I mean, just, you know, right there, I just named three centers and three wingers who could play on the penalty kill. And that's all you need, really. That's three units to send out there. Um, there's no need to put Suzuki out there. We know he's a pretty good penalty killer. Yes, he could improve, but let's, let's let Suzuki have a season where we see what's his best self. We haven't had it. He hasn't had, he's not had ideal conditions to produce in the NHL since the start of his career. All the injuries last season, All the injuries the year before, the pandemic, everything. Like, it's just like, it's never been a smooth ride where Suzuki's playing. You know, I mean, I, I remember one of the early games this season, Suzuki, they'd lost, I think, I guess they'd lost Jake Evans for a little while. He was hurt. He went back to the locker room or whatever. And, and Suzuki mm -hmm. took a shift with Jesse Alonen and Rafael Harvey Pinard on the fourth line. And I thought about it, and for like a stretch of, I think it was five or six games last season, that was the first line of the Montreal Canadiens, <laughs> was Jesse Ullinen, Nick Suzuki, and Raphael Harvey-Pinard. And so, you know, he hasn't had that opportunity to be playing with, you know, with Cole Caulfield for a full season. Right. Um, and to have a, a, some stability on his other wing, you know, which hopefully, if, if, if this works with Slavkovsky, great. If it doesn't, then you have Monaghan there as an alternative. Like, there's, there's different ways to keep that line producing, but It's he's I don't it's I don't want to put it too drastically, but it's kind of put up or shut up time for Nick Suzuki, despite everything I just said, like all the things that all the legitimate excuses he's had up until now. It'd be it'd be good for him to have an excuse free season where we can just see what what are you what are you about? Yeah. What is Nick Suzuki all about? So I think taking him off the PK is part of that. It's funny because when I saw that question, I thought also of Mike Matheson, who's in a similar situation because Matheson could also benefit from not being on the PK anymore. Uh -huh. uh, he's been, he's had a very, very good beginning of the season, but his play has dipped recently. He was, 
he was injured at, uh, during the course of a game um, recently that was against uh, Winnipeg uh, on October 28th. But you, you look at his last few games, you know, he averages 24 minutes a night. Um, but in the last three games, it's been 22 minutes, 22 minutes, 21 minutes. And uh, it's, 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 not, a, it's, a, it's a place. Good. I'm sorry? He's been not good. He hasn't been, no, 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 exactly. He's been, uh, he's been creating a lot of turnovers. He's been going back more towards the, the, the type of hockey that uh, earned him some, some reproach from especially the, the, the Florida brass uh, back in the day. But I think that if you want to reduce his usage a little bit, getting him off the, the PK could be an option. You know, you want to manage those minutes and you want to make sure that you use those guys uh, to the best of their ability. And, uh, Matheson is, I think, is mainly, is he can be a, a responsible defensive defenseman, but he's mainly, I think, an offensively oriented defenseman. And same goes to Suzuki. He's capable defensively, but it's you. He's you're better served when he's there for you five on five, and he's also fresh for the power play. So, yeah. okay, uh, one last. Yeah, one last. Uh, yeah. Uh, Okay, so there's Bayern Habs here that say, what are realistic trade packages for each of the three goalies? Uh, I think that it's going to be hard to get into proper examples, but if uh, I yeah. ask you, like, overall, uh, do, you see, do you see value for any of those guys? No. I know it for, for various reasons. Uh, well... Maybe for Montembeau at the deadline, mm -hmm. since he's a uh, since he's an impending UFA. So, but the rental market for goalies is generally re relatively soft, unless you're a really established top-flight goaltender. Um, and uh, you know the Canadians are still kind of mulling their way through the process of of what kind of a contract they would like to offer Sam Montembeau. Sam definitely wants to stay in Montreal, so. I don't. I would be surprised if they did that with him. Even if contract talks didn't produce anything between now and the deadline, I think they would probably let that play its course. Caden Primo, sixth round draft pick, would be on the higher end of things. I mean, I don't. I just don't know what teams are willing to give up for a guy who has not only not proven himself in the NHL, has not really proven himself in the AHL either. And so it's, it, it the Canadians are open to trading him. Uh, if something opens up, but they also are concerned about this Montembeau situation and would like to have Primo there as a guy who could take over for Montembeau in a backup role and, and push Jake Allen for, for starts uh, next season. Now, Jake Allen, if he continues playing at the level that he's been playing, which, let's be clear, is highly unlikely, <laughs> but if he does, yeah. um, then maybe that could drum up a trade market for him. Uh, would the Oilers be desperate enough to say, oh, wow, Jake Allen's played great for five games. Let's pin our entire Stanley Cup hopes on him, you know? Or would, would some other, you know, Los Angeles' situation, yes, they've been getting good goaltending so far, but how long is that going to last? I don't think that's going to last all that. Like, you know, th there's, there's a question mark and goal in Los Angeles. There's a few places where, but in each of those places, I can't see the other team's GM saying, oh, well, Jake Allen's a guaranteed upgrade on what I have now. Yeah. And not only that, but there's another year left on his contract, which, you know, the Canadians gave Jake Allen that contract, A, because he's a solid, if not spectacular, 
like not a spectacular goalie, but he's solid. He's he he'll probably give you you know league average goaltending. You can feel relatively assured that you'll get that from him. But more than that, he's a tremendous leader. He's a tremendous voice in the dressing room. He brings a lot of intangibles that a young team can benefit from um, that the Canadians value, and so that's why he got that contract. And I mean, would they be? I think they'd be open if someone came to them and, and made an offer for Jake Allen that was even close to being reasonable. I think the Canadians would would definitely listen. Uh, but I don't. I think the likeliest of the three, if anyone was going to get traded, would be Primo. But I honestly don't think. I don't think the Canadians are going to trade any of their goalies. I'd be surprised. Yeah, and I think that if Primo was to fetch a sixth round pick, the Canadians would rather just send him down. And cross their fingers that they won't lose him on waivers. And they don't the off seem, chance they don't he's seem not... willing to do that for some reason. I don't know why, but they don't seem. No, willing I know, to do but that. they. I would do well, that. You would do that. Well, it's because right now they, they might want to trade him. But they, if if this if the return is so minimal, they yeah. might as well roll the dice and and see if he's going to be taken or not. Because he might not be. They yeah. think he will, but he might not be. Whereas if I you trade them for so a six-round pick, what's won't. the use of a, a six-round pick for them right now? Nothing. Zero. No. Nothing. But what's the use of having Caden Primo as your third goalie? Nothing. <laughs> there's no there's no value being gained by Caden Primo sitting on your roster backing up goalies. You know, there's n I agree. But we went see, over this before. Many, it's the you don't see too many smiles on Caden Primo's face these days. No. No, no, but I mean, if you have a a, a a goalie that you're unsure of resigning, and you're looking at you know future options, and the other guys that are in the American League are not ready for NHL action, uh -huh. then you you just you just can't lose that guy, even if you might not be super high on him or have a specific use for him right now. Uh, you need that third goalie, so that's his. But and as for but I agree with you the. the I mean, if you look at the market for, for Montembeau, I, I, I did a bit of digging and there's not a lot of guys that are traded like during the season. If uh, like at the, um, at the trade deadline uh, in March of 2022, there was Marc-André Fleury who was about to become a UFA or yeah. everybody knows him. Uh, he was traded for a conditional second round pick that could have become a first, but it remained a second round pick. Yeah. But apart from that, All the other goalies that were that were traded pretty much since then were all over the summer. Uh, Georgia wasn't Corpusella traded at the deadline last year. Yeah, he was also. Uh, yeah, he was traded actually. Yeah, at the same time there was in the uh, there was this funny uh, deal with, uh, with Jonathan Quick, right? Uh, yeah. So he, quick yeah, and a third round Columbus, and they went to Vegas, and yeah, Quick and a first round pick for uh, Corpusella and Gavrikov. Right. Um, Yeah, so since then, but I look at goalies that, well, Carpisalo, you could argue that, that Montembeau is in that category, but you see, in the in summer of 2022, Aiden Hill, who had one year left on his deal, was traded for a fourth-round pick. Uh, Ville Husso in the that summer of 2022. That was a case where San Jose didn't want to lose among waivers, though, right? Well, no, that was off-season. That was in August. Oh, but yeah, but that was... But they knew that he was going to have to go on waivers by, right. the, end of training, by the end of training camp. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Ville Uso, one year left. He was uh, he was traded from uh, St. Louis to Detroit against a third round pick. 
So he wow. had one year left. Uh, and then you got Vanacek and Georgiev who had uh, were RFA with arbitration rights, and they were they were traded basically for second picks, third round picks, etc. So it's not there's not real value there. If Montembeau was to be traded at the deadline, good luck getting more than the third round pick for him. It's just uh, it's well, it's honestly, really if, odd. They could get, if they could get a second round pick for Sam Montembeau, they would jump at it. Yeah, <laughs> there'd, be, there'd be no there'd be no debate. I don't think, but it's not it's not realistic and and. It's, I think, you know, the, the Canadians would like to know, much like they would with Primo, they'd like to be sure that what they've seen from Sam Montembeau is actually legitimate. You know, we've seen lots of goalies have a hot stretch and then sort of revert back into some sort of mushy middle kind of goalie, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and so it's, it's yeah, it's going to have to be uh, an instance where, you know the contract talks are really going to determine the willingness of the Canadians to trade him or not. And and you know but, Sam told me in, in St. Louis the other day that very very preliminary talks have begun, uh, but nothing concrete is how we put it. And it's it's really early stages. I think the Canadians are going to tiptoe into this one, and Sam's going to have to continue to perform. Uh, but again. With the goalie setup as it is, unless Marty's willing to have Caden sit forever, there's starts are going to be sporadic. And and one of you know Jake Allen or Sam Montabu, if Primo gets a start here and there, might have to go like a week between starts. And it's just yeah. going to be it's you know I, I did ask him like as an impending UFA who's playing for a contract, is it in the back of your mind with this weird setup that you guys have now? And he was his initial answer was a little bit. And then he said, but I'm really focusing on how I play and blah, blah, blah. But the first thing he said was a little bit. So it's there. Yeah. It's in the yeah, back yeah. of his mind. Well, yeah. So. But if the Canadians want to know what Montembeau is about, then if they want to know what Primo is about, when you have three goalies, it's it makes it that much harder to find what guys are about when you get so little playing time for them. Yeah, So exactly. Yeah. And then you have Jake Allen, who... Every time he's asked about it, as we mentioned on the previous episode, every time he's asked about anything, he brings up the three goalies. He mm. could be asked about what the weather is like outside, and he'd say, "Well, with three goalies, you know, <laughs> it feels a little rainier than it does when it's when it should be sunny, kind of thing." So, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like uh, this. There, there was this uh, former player, Gilles Tremblay, who used to be an analyst on TV, and it seems like all of his analysis every time, oh, you know, nowadays with the curved on the sticks. You know, it's, it's just like every, no matter what it was about, you know, right. the curve on the, the sticks. Curve on the, was, the curve oh, on the sticks, right, exactly. That, that was Allen. But, yeah, yeah, just, I mean, just, just to finish up, I guess, on the goalie thing is that it's it's the, just the extent. I mentioned this in my notebook today, which, you know, it's kind of an unoriginal name. But um, so Sam Montable, the one thing he said that was good about the goal, three goalie system is that he really liked not having to back up in Arizona. He could come to the rink a little later. He had it's a workout true, during the first period. He was on the bike. He was working out with the strength and conditioning coach and was able to really prepare himself for his next start in St. Louis. So I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's the first like positive thing we've heard about the three-goalie system. So I'm in St. Louis, and obviously Jake Allen's like the mayor of St. Louis and like knows everyone, and, and everyone loves him. <laughs> and so uh, I happened to run – I happened to cut, like cross pads with him in the bowels of Enterprise Center – I say hello, you know, and whether he's enjoying his time in St. Louis. So I was like, oh, you know, it, it must be nice not having to back up at least, you know, if you're not going to play 
at least you can schmooze and, and do all this stuff. It's like, no, nah, I'd rather be on the bench, man. Like, I'd rather be in the fight. Like, he, he did not like it. Like, he'd mm. rather be playing, even if he's not playing, rather be on the bench with this team in a uniform and be part of the fight. And so, uh, yet yeah. again, the one positive, I kind of joked with, I kind of, I don't know if I should say this, I kind of joked with Jake. I was like, figures a guy whose name is Snacks doesn't mind being in the press box during a game. <laughs> <laughs> Jake thought that was funny. Anyhow, um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but yeah, got- but just to say that even that one maybe positive part of this three goalie setup does not is not unanimous. The two guys mm. were benefiting from it, and I can guarantee you that Caden Primo doesn't love being the backup every night. You know, he almost. I guess he would. No, rather, of course, he he'd probably play. rather. Well, he'd definitely rather play. But I, I don't know. I haven't had a chance to ask him if if he if he enjoys being the backup more than just hanging out and we're playing like going on the bike and doing workouts and whatever i don't know well at least he's got a chance to play if he's dressed you know yeah so if otherwise and he does have to go through the sort of the mental prep of being you right, know, right. at yeah. least the backup or whatever so did you know speaking of snacks uh montambo is, is, uh, is doing a radio ad with his mom for uh, the iga supermarkets so it's I about food know. and honestly i swear to god i can I feel like he's, he's got his mouth full when he's talking. Seems like he's <laughs> munching on something during the ad. So Snacks yeah. is the best. Is you know we've heard a lot of good nicknames in the NHL, but Snacks is it's not only Snacks. It's a, it's, it's it's what they, <laughs> that they that he, David Savard man. David Savard is is he's good. He's good like that. He's good for yeah. stuff like that. But yeah, Snacks is one of the better hockey nicknames I've heard for sure. For sure. Yeah. All right. So let's wrap this up. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We're going to be back on uh, Friday. Uh, by then, the Canadians, we'll see what the, how they fare. Maybe that the, the wind will blow in an entirely different direction. But anyway, we'll be back. I uh, hope you guys uh, like this, uh, you know, this twice a, w- twice a week thing. Uh, I know I do. And uh, it's, man, I'm getting used to that notebook. I haven't, fun- I'm having fun with it. So I hope that uh, you guys are too. So. That's it. Have a good week, everyone.